what Keep Kids Alive is all about. It's all about preserving relationships. Hi, I'm Tiffany Stanfield, and I am the founder of Fighting Hard, Fighting Against Hidden Run Driving. She was brilliant. She was sharp. She was beautiful. She was ambitious. Just this amazing, powerful woman. I realized in that moment that there was a need here beyond my sister's case. And because of that, I decided that I wanted to become a voice for every victim that didn't have a voice. I think a behavioral change is important. And if this is a behavior that your son or your daughter sees, then when it's time for them to drive, guess who's gonna practice that behavior? They're gonna think that that's okay. We have a specific focus that's still being ignored still to this day. And that is where our biggest hurdle is, is is that voice. I want to welcome our our audience from around the country today as we have an opportunity to uh, have a conversation uh, with Tiffany about uh, the work that Fighting Hard is doing to share about the mission, uh, where that mission originated. Uh, what's happening today and where she hopes to see this go and how we might help that uh, in the process. Thank you very much, Tiffany, for joining us today. And going to start off with just from your perspective uh, and your memory, you know, how did we connect? Well, thank you for having me, first and foremost. I really appreciated connecting with you because of our similar focus, which is pedestrian safety. And I was indirectly connected with you through a former coworker who was very familiar with your efforts over time. And she basically redirected me to you as my organization kind of was in its beginning stages and thought that it, um, it would be a good idea to, to potentially really speak to you about your beginning and get some insights and, and direction on where to go with this specific focus on hit and run driving. So. Um, and then, of course, that led to a further connection with you and your family, your daughter, who happened to run on behalf of my sister, who was killed by a hit-and-run driver at a summit that you host in uh, Colorado Springs. So those are some of our, our connected moments, if you will. Well, thank you, Tiffany. And I, and I want to thank Kathy, the uh, friend of ours who brought us together kind of dates me a little bit because uh, Kathy was one of my students when I was teaching high school in the ner- early 1980s. So, you know, if those math wizards out there might figure out uh, what decade of life I'm in <laughs> at this point, but I'm, I'm really delighted that, uh, that Kathy connected us and that that's led to this conversation today. Absolutely. Yeah. But to dive in, Tiffany, I'd like to give you an opportunity to share your story about the origins of fighting hard and talking about Jamaica, your sister. So Fighting Hard started in uh, 2017. It was birthed out of a grief of me grieving the uh, loss of my sister, Jamika, Jamika Stanfield. Jamika uh, is my younger sister of four years. She has a, had a son and she was brilliant. She was sharp. She was beautiful. She was ambitious. She was determined not to be a product of our dysfunctional environment, if you will. She was striving to have a better life for her and her son. And I like to always start off with just this 
amazing, powerful woman that she was and how she would take a bull by the horns and just push through any adversity. And I always admired her that about her, even being my younger sister. I recall there was a one of my favorite moments was her coming home after being awarded this award at her job. And she'd been on her job for, I, I guess, probably about 10, 12 years. And, but she went into this job in, 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 in the most entry level capacity. And she got this award that, that the uh, president likened it to an MVP in athletics. And out of 11,000 employees, she received this award not once, but twice. And honestly, I didn't learn about that story until her funeral. The president of the company came and told us that story at her funeral. My sister was killed by a hit and run driver on April 12th, 2016, which was my mom's birthday. And receiving that news was devastating to my family, her son. You know, the tragedy, it, it, it was it was something that even today that I still reel from. At the time, I had always been a community advocate. I've always advocated for the, the youth in our community, uh, the inner city youth, the urban youth. Uh, for varying different causes has always been a passion of mine, but I knew that I needed to redirect this energy that I had regarding my sister, because even at that time, I shut my programs down. I just was really standoffish from what what used to be the norm for me. So I started doing research on my sister's case and uh, really trying to understand the dynamics of her case and the dynamics of hit and run driving as a whole, because I, I just simply didn't know enough about it. And having a research background led me down a path of uncovering several cases of pedestrian fatalities involving hit and run driving with a specific focus of hit and run driving. And I realized in that moment that there was a need here beyond my sister's case. And because of that, I decided that I wanted to become a voice for every victim that didn't have a voice for families that have been impacted by hit and run driving. So that was the birth of uh, Fighting Hard. And its goal is to raise awareness to a lot of what's happening with pedestrian fatalities, specifically to hit and run, to educate individuals regarding hit and run, and also to provide resources to these families and resources that come in so many different forms, whether that's monetary resources, connect them to resources for counseling services. In some cases, I've, I've purchased groceries and just really help families the best way that I can while grieving the loss of my sister. And even sometimes in the loss of that, there's sometimes the forgotten portion, if you will, that we are still victims. So we started this organization mostly my a lot there's a lot of organizations that exist with the focus on distracted driving and in several other instances but i think our main goal is to be the voice of the victim to humanize hit and run cases and not just the statistic but actual human beings when you think about uh families that you maybe you've connected with over the last few years 
Do you have a story or two that you might be able to share about your encounter with any one of them? Oh, absolutely. There's one story that I'm impacted by even current day. And I tend to every now and then check on this family. Ronisha Calvin was a, a young woman who was killed by a hit and run driver in December of 2017. And the media reported Ronisha's killing as just a, a, a fatal accident. And I'm not going to go down that, that path, but I also have a focus on how these cases are being reported in the media. I will say something. You know, I'd really like our listeners to understand that uh, 95% of traffic deaths, there are behavioral reasons for why they happen. They are not accidents. Uh, you know, an accident would be something that uh, we absolutely have no control over whatsoever uh, by virtue of our behaviors. And so we really need to focus on those behaviors in our educational efforts and the way that we behave, whether behind the wheel or riding a bike or whatever the activity might be to help preserve our own lives and the lives of those around us. It's one of the challenges uh, of, uh, you know, having a mission that focuses in on traffic safety is uh, to, in a way, eradicate the word accident uh, from our vocabulary. There are crashes, there are incidents, uh, but they're most oftentimes are not accidents. I absolutely agree with that. And I, I almost cringe when, I hear, you know, examples like a pedestrian hit by a car or a pedestrian that was hit, you know, as opposed to, you know, looking at the entire scope of it, which is a pedestrian that was hit by a driver. And it's the driver practicing those or exhibiting behaviors that may have caused those reckless outcomes. So I agree with you, you know, that is something that an extreme focus of mine, which ties into why. This story is so impactful for me because this young woman was hit, reported only just as a crash. However, she was pregnant. She had her seven-year-old nephew that was in the car, her boyfriend that was in a car. The seven-year-old was her sister's son. And then there was another cousin that was in the car. All of them were severely injured. None of this was reported. None of this was reported. The seven-year-old had to learn how to walk and talk. That's how severe his injuries were. Ronisha was kept alive in a coma in order for her to carry to term. And they delivered the son in January of 2018, which at that point she was pronounced dead. The grandmother, Ms. Bonita Brown, not only has to grieve the loss of her daughter, she has to raise a new grandson, not to mention raising the seven-year-old, and then her son, who was also in the car, her nephew that was also in. So all of these people that suffered severe injuries, that case stands out to me tremendously. And to this day, that driver has never been found. So when we, we at Fighting Hard, we like to speak to the long-term impact of the family after they've suffered such a tragedy. Because once it's reported into the media, it, dis it disappears, which is another one of my biggest issues, is the, dis the disparities that takes place in pedestrian fatalities, the inequities of it. Let me just leave it there, because I don't want to 
go deeper into your uh, several questions, but all of our, the reasons that we exist are interconnected. Let me just say that. I don't mind you if you want to get into inequities as you see these, uh, as you experience these cases yourself, because I think those are things that need to be talked about. Oh, absolutely. One of the, one of the things that I've learned since attempt in some tables um, I sit at and then some tables that I don't and the tables that I and some of the exposure that I have seen is that there hasn't been a lot of support around the black and brown and seniors that are killed or severely injured in hit and run fatality. Uh, when I think about and I'm, I'm looking at my notes, just so you know, because I all of this is in my head, but I also want to make sure that I'm articulating this information accurately. For example, so in the state of Missouri, as of June, traffic fatality rates were 16 percent higher than it was last year. So thus far in 2020, we've experienced 512 deaths just in this year alone of pedestrian fatalities. There's a few areas that I look at. I look at the actual incident, how it's been reported, the follow-up, and also the number of cases that have, quote-unquote, been solved. Quite a bit of those cases are not solved. I would always would want to think that it's because of caseloads or busyness, <laughs> and I'm, I'm only using those words lightly, but what we have discovered is that uh, people of color tend to live in urban areas where residents walk more, they have less cars, they uh, use a public transportation quite often, traffic violence is up, crime violence is up, traffic enforcement is down, and you deal with a lot of reckless driving in those areas, and, and then a lot of the urban areas have higher crime rates. And so when, when these cases are being reported, they're being reported just an unfortunate accident. And then they're being underreported because a lot of hit and run cases are not coded. They're coded as a pedestrian fatality, but not specifically a hit and run, which is why when you pull, when you pull a Missouri Department of Transportation case, you can see, for example, when I looked at those numbers for 2020, 512, I was not able to do a granular search to understand of those 512, how many were hit and runs? And that is what we run into when they're all kind of lumped into this number. So then when we look at the Portland State University and the University of Arizona, whether individuals that conducted the reckless driving or pedestrian fatality study. And in this study, they dressed men um, exactly the same, similar age and build, and they crossed, they had these gentlemen cross 15 times, resulting in an interaction of over 168 drivers. So just to be able to see the reactionary of these pedestrians crossing the street, this really speaks to the behaviors and characteristics that you were referring to. Black pedestrians were passed by twice as many cars and waited a third longer than white subjects across the road, meaning that quite often some of these Individuals behind the wheel were just completely disregarding some of the pedestrians of color in this study. Robert 
Wood conducted a, 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 an amazing study um, called the Bridging the Gap, and they conducted a sample of street segments. And in the street segment study, what they did was they assessed 154 communities in this study. And within that study, they took a look at the high income suburban areas. And they took a, a look at, you know, kind of the middle range, median range uh, income areas. And I quote, it says here, the high income areas was 89% of the streets had sidewalks and only 49% did in lower income areas. And marked, i.e. painted sidewalks were more visible at a 13% higher rate in a higher income level than it was in a lower income level. So for me, when I look at the disproportions, when we talk about disparities and disproportion, we look at infrastructure, we look at street sign, we look at traffic budgets, we look at speed, we look at traffic enforcement, and then of course some of the things that you were speaking about are the uh, behaviors, the driving behaviors. That could be a whole nother podcast because AAA <laughs> did a study in 2018, a very in-depth study on the characteristics of both the pedestrian and the driver. They did a really good deeper dive into behavioral reasons and, and um, characteristics on the driver that reckless drive, that chooses to leave the scene, that drive drunk distracted drive. I mean, it was such a powerful research that they did. I highly recommend your listeners to uh, take a look at that, that study. Well, thank you, Tiffany. Uh, in listening to, uh, to your sharing, uh, and, you know, I'm reminded of, of a couple of things. One is um, I've uh, chaired the uh, Mayor's Vision Zero Task Force here in uh, Omaha, which completed its work several months ago. But, you know, one of the things of serving on that task force was addressing or learning about much of what you have talked about, you know, about looking at uh, infrastructure, about looking at areas of the city where crashes are more apt to happen, looking at why those crashes happen. You know, one of the factors being uh, street design, but also the behavior of uh, the people who were involved in those incidents. But one of the things that we also learned from uh, uh, that process is uh, in engaging uh, law enforcement uh, was present in our, our task force. And one of the things that we learned, and this may be something that is true in Missouri as well, as you were mentioning about a reporting apparatus that allows you such and such information about why an incident happened. You know, because one of the things that we learned here in Nebraska was that officers when they were filling out a report, they had to narrow it down to one specific reason why something happened. When actually, if you talk with them, they say, well, there were multiple reasons and there usually are multiple behaviors involved because that's the way the state form was set up. And so that certainly was one of the recommendations out of our uh, task force is that, uh, that those forms needed to be updated so that they would reflect more the totality of the picture of why an incident happened or what factors led up to that incident as well. And that may be true in other states as well, is, you know, sometimes the reporting apparatus is not, it's not consistent with what is happening in the present day. I mean, for example, any one of us, uh, whether we're behind the microphone or listening out there, you know, recognizes that 20 years ago, 
there certainly was little, if any, data about cell phone use while people were driving. And, and uh, that's only beginning to be transformed in the last several years. And there's a lot more work to be done with that. And certainly with uh, the work that you're doing, Tiffany, with uh, hit and run driving, you know, it's da- a lot of data still needs to be uh, not only gathered, but uh, disseminated in a way where we can look at how do we respond? How do we respond in ways that help to preserve the lives and welfare of people on and around roadways? So a lot of work to be done there. But thank you for setting the table for us that way. No worries. Thank you. What are the important facts that our audience needs to know about hit and run incidents? And you've shared some of those. But if you were to, you know, take a few bullet points and say, you know, these are things that I'd really like people to think about when it comes to your driving behavior and interacting with pedestrians, what are some of the things that, uh, that you would encourage us to uh, pay attention to and to act upon? I think that that's a very good question. And I've actually have gotten that question in other interviews. And my response is always revert back to the basics, you know, and those basics are something that we're taught as children, you know, From a pedestrian perspective, what do you do before you cross the street? You look both ways, you know, instead of crossing in the middle, you cross at the corners. Don't cross against the light, cross on the light, you know, wait till the light, you know, is free for you to to cross. And even even then look for traffic, because unfortunately, you know, you still have to protect yourselves when you're out here. When I think about from a driver's perspective. You know, be cognizant when you're in a high foot traffic area, uh, whether it's bicyclists, scooter riders, you know, and obviously, you know, those that are utilizing public transportation. I think that drivers can be more aware, especially in the height of distraction on both parties, both the driver and the pedestrian. I think it's a responsibility on both parties to be aware, especially as we think about you know, texting and walking, dreaming and walking, listening to uh, headphones and walking. And then the opposite is the case. Drivers texting and driving, streaming and driving, which is still unbelievable to me. And, you know, and sometimes in the case, music is up too loud and driving. I think that it is our responsibility as individuals, both from a driver's side and a pedestrian side, to hold a level of responsibility of being more safe. Here's another step that I'll take even further. I think a behavioral change is important. If you are a parent who has new drivers in your household and your child is at the age where every time they get in the car, you're texting, you're eating, you're putting on makeup, or if you, you know, you're drinking coffee, you're making the coffee in the car in some cases. Uh, and if this is a behavior that your son or your daughter sees, and when it's time for them to drive, guess who's going to practice that behavior? They're going to think that that's okay. And then if it's also the opposite. You know, if you are aware, if you are tuned in to what's happening behind the wheel, this is something that you're going to educate your children as well. So these are some of the things that I tend to respond to when people ask me that question. It's mostly getting back to the basics and understanding that behaviors can be duplicated, and that includes those behaviors behind the wheel, as well as the pedestrian. If you're crossing in the middle of the street with your toddler or your daughter or your son, 
guess what? When they grow up, they're going to do the same thing. When they're running against the car to beat the car, or if they're running to beat the bus to catch the bus, they're going to do the same thing. We have to change those behaviors. Well, thank you, Tiffany. Uh, it reminds me, uh, one of our initiatives with Keep Kids Alive uh, Drive 25 is uh, what we call Stop, Take, Three to See that has to do with the correct way to stop at a stop sign, which also doubles as a way to teach kids how to cross the street because it's the same process. You come to a complete stop and you look left, you look right, you look left again. And uh, we hear these things, but oftentimes I think we need to approach this as if we're uh, training for a sport or playing mm-hmm. a musical instrument that we need to realize that it's the rehearsal of those skills that really helps us to be competent at practicing those skills when we most need them. When one of our sons was learning to drive, uh, he was practice driving and uh, we were going through the neighborhood and he was driving to football practice and uh, he rolled through a stop sign. And I asked him, uh, well, what did you just do? And he said, well, nobody was coming. I said, did I ask you if somebody was coming or not? I said, what did you just do? And he said, I rolled through the stop sign. I said, okay. I said, where, where are you driving to? And he said, well, I'm going to football practice. I said, okay, what position do you play in football? I said, well, I play defensive back. And I said, do you have a position coach? And he says, yes, I have a position coach. I said, what does your coach tell you to do? Well, he gives me drills to do. And I said, well, how does he expect you to do those drills? That he expects me to do them the same way every time. I said, why is that? He said, well, then I'll be ready for the game. I said, well, let's come back to this stop sign. I said, why would you stop at this stop sign even if nobody is there? It's the drill. It's the drill. Know that we need to practice uh, that every time we approach a stop sign. It doesn't matter whether somebody's there or not. It's a chance to practice because there's going to come that time when, uh, you know, maybe a kid comes flying across top of the hill on a bike or something like that. And it's like, oh, we don't have to worry so much about, well, I, I didn't see him at first because I'm stopped. I'm doing what I need to do. So I'm protecting mm-hmm. myself. I'm protecting that that child as well. But I'm also reminded many years ago, there was an oil refinery outside of Texas uh, and there was a big explosion and 15 people died in the explosion. And uh, I heard a radio broadcast about this and they were interviewing somebody from the, from a government agency who had been sent down to Houston to, uh, to discern why, why this explosion happened. And he said, instead of talking to you about, you know, all the ins and outs of how a refinery works and, you know, why an explosion would happen at a refinery, he said, let's take this to your neighborhood. He said, "Uh, there's a stop sign in your neighborhood. And I observe you at that stop sign day after day after day. And you keep running that stop sign a day after day after day. And I ask you, why did you run the stop sign? Well, there was nobody there. So I didn't need to. He said that, but then one day you run that stop sign and there's a kid on a bike who is crossing that intersection and you hit that kid. And I ask you, well, why didn't you stop at the stop sign? And you said, what stop sign? I didn't even see it because you're so used to, to, to doing that. And his point was, is that the refinery, that there were checks uh, that needed to be made at the end of each day, you know, and perhaps 20 years earlier, somebody had decided to skip a check. And you know what? The refinery didn't blow up. 
So they figure, mm-hmm. well, that's probably not very important. And then over the years, people continue to skip checks and skip checks because, well, that's not really that important. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. one day the refinery blows up and 15 people die. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. it becomes very important to look at those behaviors that we could be engaging in and we could be practicing uh, each and every day. So really want to affirm not just the advice, but the practical direction that, uh, that you're giving us, Tiffany, because it doesn't matter how old we get, we still have the opportunities to practice these behaviors and these skills so that we really do become adept at them and they really do become second nature to us. But it's always important to get off to a good start, especially with our teenage drivers, that if they start practicing those, then hopefully they can uh, continue to incorporate that into their driving behavior as they continue to grow into adulthood. Uh, so Agreed. enough of my Agreed. sermon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, those are great stories, actually. Those are great stories to bring that point home. I like it. I want to ask you about, um, you know, what are your current goals for fighting hard? What are some of the things that you're working on today and uh, that you look to work on in the near future? And also, as you think about those things, uh, what are some ways that uh, our listeners might be able to support your uh, your efforts, too? Well, fighting hard, as I mentioned before, you know, we we're going to continue to raise awareness. As a matter of fact, there was a six year old who was hit and killed and we were successful in partnering with our uh, funeral home in order to to help provide services for that for that six-year-old and when i think about her case and others you know and especially in this climate all we can do is continue to put our our voice out there and then to be an advocate for uh, victims when i think about our goals in the future what does that look like it's to continue to be the voice of others. At some point, you know, we want to be able to fight against hit and run driving in other cities, you know, expanding those voices, you know, in in a way that continues to focus on this like victim centered justice, if you will. You know, I, I am very passionate about that side of it, of being one voice, one victim. Our goal is, is to continue to target how these cases are being reported, even if it's just simply as simple as what I tend to do is that when I get a media story, I, I tend to send a, a tweet, just a little small note to, you know, the editors of how this could have been rewritten. You know, for example, they can say it was a pedestrian that was hit by a car, or we can say the corrected version is there was a driver that hit a pedestrian. You know, another example could be, you know, a pedestrian was hit, well, or a pedestrian was hit by a driver, which was something that I was talking about. So those, that aligns with some of the goals because my, my goal is if we have an opportunity to continue to raise awareness to these the proper way, if we're able to report and communicate these cases in more of a, a in a more cohesive way, people will connect the dots. They would connect the dots of it being a bigger problem as opposed to just these isolated incidents that are taking place. If how this is being reported, if these stories start to shift in a way that it's pulling on the heartstrings or is making people pay a little closer attention to these pedestrian fatalities, not with specific to hit and run, don't get me wrong, but I have a focus for both. 
because this all still falls up under the umbrella of pedestrian safety. But our goal has to be to get people to understand that these aren't just a, a byline are just another story. These are real life cases and real life statistics. And, and, and this is one of our goals is to continue to tell the story, tell a relatable story, a story in which people can understand and that it becomes a bigger cause than, again, an isolated incident. So when I think about that from our goals in this new climate, is to how do we go about reaching our families in this new environment? You know, so now I, I can't do an in-person gala to honor, to pay tribute to these families. So really coordinating and with the team and really understanding how can we pay, continue to pay tribute uh, to these families. Again, one of my centralized focus is some of our black and brown families who just simply, um, I'm going to just be honest with you, sometimes it's as if people don't care. You know, when I look at graphics or when I look at websites or when I look at, you know, the mission statements, you know, some of these people simply don't know where to go. And so my goal is to push us in some way out front to say, hey, guess what? We are here for you. We are here to support you. You're not forgotten. We know you're in pain. We know you're hurting. We know that you're financially impacted. We know that you're emotionally impacted. We know that you are mentally impacted. We hear you. And so, you know, although we, again, and I use this word loosely, we are still in our empathy, but our goal is to continue to push this organization out in a way that some of those underserved neighborhoods just simply don't get the same resources as, as other uh, organizations out there that are providing. Well, I, I can certainly uh, empathize with your comment about being in your infancy because I, I've shared this before with our listeners that when uh, we were like three years old, keep kids alive, drive 25. I think people might've thought that we should have accomplished more than we had accomplished. And I, I asked him, well, what, what, what were you doing when you were three? <laughs> Cause you know, we can only learn, we can only learn so much from year to year. And I love be- that. I love that. You are absolutely correct. I love that. <laughs> well, I feel like it, it puts things into context for ourselves because, you know, as we grow as human beings, we're, we're learning at every age, hopefully. And, uh, and mm-hmm. new opportunities will come along as we grow, but we need to kind of let that organic growth happen as we move along so that those opportunities open up. And I, I certainly hope that not only that happens with the work that you're doing with Fighting Hard, but also with our organization that, that we seriously look at how we can cooperate and uh, support the, the work that you're doing. I think one of the things that uh, to me is so important about your work is that, um, is that not many people are doing it, you know, on the ground, you know, in a grassroots way that are connecting directly with families and looking at the kind of support services that are, are needed. And, uh, you know, to me, that's the, uh, practical ways in which we really are, are human to each other, that we're really humane to each other. We have a phrase we like to use with one of our campaigns called be aware, drive with care. And, um, you know, that focuses in on driving behavior, but I think that you take that, you extend it out to be aware and be of care 
you know, to the families that are connect, you are connecting with and are connecting with your mission. You know, when you think about tangible ways that listeners may be able to support your ongoing work and help that to expand and to be able to grow and perhaps to be able to connect with folks in other communities, what are some of those things that, that are not wants, but are needs? So I, I do want to make a correction on something that I said. Um, I was looking at my notes as it relates to the six-year-old. I sit on a community mobility committee uh, currently right now, and I'm happy that I'm sitting on this committee. Although Hidden Run may not align with their, their mission, the community mobility committee consists of over 100 traffic people, planners, transportation, and I mean, it's city, uh, thing with city, uh, trail net, uh, it's just everyone with the same focus. And one of the things that I, I brought up in one of the meetings, which is something that they, they we're also addressing too, is that it's how to, how I can get to some of these victims. And it's something that I said with a six year old, we spent so much time, like, so we had funding, uh, allotted and ready to go with a funeral home, but it's the parents, the grandparents, we identified who they were. It's as if they didn't believe we, you know, the legitimacy of who we were, who we are. And it was difficult getting that direct touch to, to that family without actually calling them directly because of privacy. So that's one of the barriers that we run up against. And I, I talk about this in my meeting on, on how we can structure this a little bit better where we're able to get some sort of an official connection to these families when it happens. Although I have a, a police officer that, that sits on my board, you know, even her continuous calls, we weren't able to, you know, get to this family. And that funding is still sitting aside. So at some point, they're going to contact us and we'll be able to uh, provide them, you know, just a little bit of support. It wasn't a whole lot, but it was a little bit. And then the, the funeral home that we partnered with was willing to do the funeral free of charge for the family. Now I can answer your question. I really wanted to clarify that. But when I think about tangible uh, needs, it's the same thing with any nonprofit, you know, volunteers, those that are passionate about this cause, social media strategists, those that really want to help us push this information out. Funding, you know, that's always a target, you know, is us to have a consistency in funding, you know, because again, it helps us survive. It helps us operate when I think about that. A network, a network of individuals that, that just really, you know, partners, those that really understands the specific focus, because some of what we go up against is that people already have a distracted driving cause that they support. They already have a texting and driving cause that support. They already have you know, all of these beautiful, wonderful causes, which is why I'm at the table. I volunteer for a number of other organizations, but I think where I, uh, things get a little bit, you know, tough for us is that I, it, it's the, the specific focus. We have a specific focus that's still being ignored still to this day. And that is where our biggest hurdle is, is, is that voice that one voice that that can get people to hear that we have a bigger problem on our hands as it relates to hit and run fatalities, even in the midst of COVID. It's unbelievable. 
Well, and many of our listeners, uh, I imagine, have seen some of the uh, stories and data that have come out uh, about driving behaviors during COVID. And uh, it's kind mm-hmm. of appalling. Yeah, you would it think is. that the streets might be a little calmer when it comes to driving behavior. And yet, you know, people seem to be in a greater hurry than uh, ever, you know, which. Uh, <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, so, Less cars mean it's a freeway for you to turn our, our residential streets into freeway yeah, yeah. racing. Uh, <laughs> unbelievable. I, I used to have a uh, checkered flag, but I lost it at a, uh, I, I did. <laughs> so, Sometimes like we've got to wave the checkered flag as they go by. But the thing is, is that oftentimes the checkered flag, they don't recognize that that means it's the end of the race, you know, that you're supposed to slow down and you're supposed to stop. It's unbelievable. It, you know, uh, one of your signs sit in my yard and often I'll get a people that ask, you know, because it drives me crazy when I, the way that these cars the way that they speed in the residential areas. And I can, I, I sometimes I can sit in my home and can hear how fast the cars are speeding by. And it's unbelievable. And the focus that I think that every single individual in every single residential neighborhood should be cognizant, especially if you have children in the home regarding the speeds that people are driving, even in, like I said, even in the midst of COVID. And, and, it, and just because there's an open road doesn't mean that this is, you know, drive faster. It comes back to two of the questions that I, I like to ask is who do you love and who loves you? Because mm-hmm. those are the best reasons for, for slowing down, for paying attention to what's going on around you, you know, and recognizing that all of those people around you, that uh, they could be answering those questions too, mm-hmm. because everybody's got somebody who loves them and somebody that they love. And it really is about the human connection. It's about relationships uh, that make this work really work when it uh, happens the way that it really ought to, and that we really have the opportunity to uh, help that to happen. That's a very good point, because that's actually our tagline. Our tagline for fighting hard is, what if it was your loved one? You know, so you're absolutely correct. We have to make it personal because uh, we we can go about navigating for the data, uh, sharing the data, but oftentimes people don't connect data with real human beings. And so uh, we really need to ask those questions to help uh, people to personalize their behavior and to recognize that, you know, when we're caring about the people in our car, when we're caring about the people around our car, we are caring about the community as a whole. We are being the kind of neighbor that, you know, hopefully we'd all want to live next door to and be able to share positive stories about uh, how we're living our lives. I want to come back to Jamika. You know, when you consider about Jamaica's life and her love and her spirit, how is that informing the mission of fighting hard? Jamaica cared for others. It was actually, it's just kind of how we were raised. My mom would open up her doors to anyone that was hungry, that was in need. Often when, when my mom prepared, my mom and my grandmother prepared uh, holiday dinners and we were always say, why are you preparing so much food? It's just us, you know, and they would always tell us, you know, someone always will always come over and need food. And it never failed. Every year we would feed at least 
six to eight more people that we didn't expect to come over. My sister carried that same spirit, which is what she also taught her son. Uh, my sister is within that spirit that's what drives what I do is to help others, is to continue to help others. And I will tell you one thing. My sister was very poignant, very straightforward, and very intentional about anything that she did. And I would say that that is the same thing with Fighting Hard. We're very poignant about our reason that we exist. We're very intentional about being the voice of the victim. And we're very generous when it comes to our give of what we're seeking to do. We give, you know, I, I'm going to say I, I give my heart, you know, I give my support. I care about each and every single phone call that I get or on on my website, um, there's a link that asks, tell us your hard story. You know, and every time I get a story, I don't just read it. I want to talk to them. I want them to know that someone cares. And often that's all I wanted to know that someone cared about my sister. So any every single case that I have come across, I think about my sister in a way, what would she have done? She would have listened. She would have gone over there. My sister used to drink wine, so she'll have gone over there with her, with her bottle of wine if they wanted it, of course, <laughs> and and actually listen to them. My sister was one that showed up to people's, you know, events with flowers or something that that you know she was just a touching individual. So when I think about her as it relates to fighting hard, I mean, you know, everything that we stand for, she stood for. We had the privilege last year of having uh, you and your brother come out and uh, join us uh, for our Live Forward weekend in Colorado. You know, what was your experience uh, of that weekend? Um, That experience, there were two critical moments out of that was that um, I don't think that our family had officially grieved my sister's loss. And together, I mean, we were, we had been on autopilot since my sister passed away. And at that time, when that opportunity came about, we all were still raw in emotion. And how we were raised is, is we, you don't show your emotion. You suppress those, that things that you're dealing with and you strive forward, you push forward. You know, you don't deal with those things. You, you suppress them. But I think one of the things that we got out of Pike's Peak, was the, uh, the the togetherness, other like-minded individuals that was grieving just like us. We got out of it the peace. We were able to find a sense of peace in that trip. We were able to connect to my sister in a way that was extremely profound, especially when your daughter told the story of her so you're, you know, obviously your daughter ran on behalf of my sister. And when she told the story of how she was, she had gotten so far up the mountain to run on behalf of her. And I remember this so vividly and, and I still get emotional when I think about it. And she said that it was like my sister hand in her back, pushing her up the mountain. And that was a really profound moment for me because that told me then that I can finally be in some level of peace. She was right there with us. 
So being the spiritual woman that I am, I found that trip to be, it created a, uh, a healing process. It started a healing and recovery process for my brother and I. And it also provided memories of which I can now share with her son, who wasn't able to make that trip at the time, but be able to, and, and, he, and he and I, we still talk about it, the, the experiences of what that trip was able to provide for us. So Pice Peak, that is what what I got out of that that trip, because although I run this organization, that you'll be surprised, behind closed door, it takes every bit of God's strength, will to push me in order to speak on behalf of these families because every every single case triggers my own grief, my own pain. So it takes a lot of his will to continue to push me and remind me of my why, which is this beautiful queen behind me. One of the things that uh, I really want to affirm about you, Tiffany, is uh, not only the, the worthwhileness of your mission and the work that you're doing day in and day out, but also uh, the spirit of gratitude that we, and I feel like not just me, but you know, all who gathered last year for our Pikes Peak weekend experienced through you uh, and your brother, because uh, you are such gracious people. Gratitude is something that, you know, maybe sometimes I think we can take it for granted that, well, somebody said, thank you. That was nice. But for me, your gratitude, your graciousness, it comes from uh, the full embodiment of who you are as a human being. It really does come from your heart Thank and you. soul. And, and uh, that has great meaning uh, to us in carrying out our mission as well. And so I'd be remiss to not say that to you. Thank you. Last note, is there anything that you're thinking of right now that you say, well, I really want to make sure that uh, our listeners got to hear this from me or something that I want to leave with them. I actually wrote this and it's very, very short. I wrote, thank you for asking that question. I want to start it off by saying, what if it, what if it was your loved one? Drive and walk with the mindset that if it was your loved one on the road, how would you behave? And that's what I would want to leave your, your listeners with. Amen. Thank you very much, Tiffany. I appreciate you uh, considering us for your podcast series. It's always an honor to have any level of connection to keep kids alive. And we really just appreciate you uh, keeping us on your radar. Thank you for listening and get involved by following on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, it's about kids, it's about safety, it's about caring, it's about time.